you want to get the latest news about our podcast, including upcoming episodes, exclusive content, and live events, visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. There is so much misinformation about sort of like health and like wellness and food and like supplements and things like that. There's, that is such a huge problem online too. We don't think of that as fake news so much because we don't we don't think about it in the same way as we see sort of about like Pope endorses Donald Trump type of stuff. Fake news and the reliability of online information. That's not just a concern for newsrooms, but pretty much anybody who consumes online content. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Laura Hazard-Owen is a deputy editor at the Neiman Journalism Lab, which seeks to find solutions to problems within the journalism industry in the digital age. Laura previously covered digital book publishing for paid content and GigaOM. At Neiman, she writes regularly about innovation taking place in the news industry. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, now, I've been reading your stuff on Neiman Lab, the Neiman Journalism Lab, for a while, and you've been writing a lot of topics that I'm really kind of interested in, sort of what's going on with Facebook, a lot of the algorithm issues that, that, that people have questions about. Let's sort of back up and, and, you know, how did you end up at your current position in, at uh, Neiman? Before this, I was a book publishing reporter in, in New York for a now defunct website called GigaOM. And so I wrote about tech and book publishing there in 2015, came to Harvard to be the deputy editor of Neiman Journalism Lab, where I'm doing about half editing and half writing about the stuff that you mentioned. Okay. So is it is it is mostly your interest in sort of the, the digital, the technological side of, of journalism? Is that your focus? Right now, my focus these days is kind of on what we call fake news or false information or misinformation or whatever whatever we're calling it now. I'm writing a lot about that, sort of the research into it and how the big platforms are dealing with it, how we can try to stop it in terms of various media literacy initiatives and things like that. I'm also really interested in writing about, you know, just uh, women in journalism, the, the stuff that they're doing, sort of the digital ventures that they're working on. Um, that's sort of turned into a little side beat for me today. I really like. That's cool. That's actually that's a really cool side beat. But uh, fake news, you know, having done this podcast, doing a, a podcast every week talking about digital journalism, maybe a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I thought that we would do a couple of episodes about fake news. But fake news is something that just continues to go on and, and sort of evolves into something different. And there's so many different approaches to it. What is it that, you know, interests you about about this topic? Yeah, so when I first started writing the column about a year ago, we weren't sure if there was going to be, like, enough to put in it every week. And, you know, there totally has been, as you said. I've gotten really interested in writing about the, the research that's being done into fake news, so the academic papers that people are are the sort of the, the studies that people are doing about it, like how do people actually respond to it and how, how does it spread and uh, things like that. So... One of the best things about working for Harvard is that I have access to all of its libraries, which means that I you know, can get these papers in digital form and like actually read them, which is something that you know, if I were just me out there, I would not, I would, it would cost like hundreds of dollars to do. So it's been really cool to get to actually see this research and then circle back around with the people who are writing it and 
talk to them about like what they're seeing, like why they're studying this stuff, what they think there needs to be more of and what, what they want to keep looking at and things like that. So right now, this week, what's kind of your handle on, on fake news? What is it that we, you know, where is the industry at? What should we still be concerned about? There's a couple of things that I'm thinking about right now. One of them is sort of what, what is the role of Facebook in spreading fake news and how is that going to change? What are we going to know about that when Facebook opens up some of its platform to researchers a little bit more? So one of the things you'll see if you're reading sort of about studies about fake news or, or you know, things people have learned about fake news, a lot of it has to do with what happens on Twitter because Twitter is a pretty, pretty easy platform for research, researchers to study. They make a they make their data pretty uh, available. And Facebook is kind of this black box. You don't really know what's happening there. But Facebook has agreed that it's going to open up uh, some of its data to some researchers, which is kind of to be determined who they are. But it's, it's said that it's going to do this. And I think that that will give us a really interesting look into what's actually happening there. Some other stuff that I'm kind of thinking about I am interested right now in sort of fact-checking, and it's it's become taken on this sort of partisan feeling where um, conservatives in particular are less likely to trust it. I'm interested in some of the ways that uh, fact-checking can become less associated with kind of um, media elites and more accessible to people. Like, how can it can it sort of be rebranded in a way that it's that it's working for wider audiences? Um, and those are uh, those are a couple of the things that I've been following recently. I get that. I think a lot of people are are kind of um, not too maybe I don't know confident that that Facebook is going to police its house because every time that they've tried apparently adjusted something after much furor. It's never quite what the the media really kind of wants, and, and maybe what people really kind of need in in verification and understanding of what you know Facebook is doing. So you know, what approach would we use? Would we would we try to find a, a sort of a third party that that would be independent? Some sort of, I think you know, AP was it AP was trying to do that that the fact checking somebody was trying to do a third part set up a third party fact checking system that all sides could could trust. I think, you know, the thought was if, if you could get Facebook on board from a, you know, a business standpoint, it behooves them to, to have a, a business that people trust, that, that one would think that that would be a self-checking system. But, you know, maybe that hasn't been something that's happened up to this point. One thing that they have been doing, they do have this sort of third-party fact-checking partnership where they're working with different outside organizations to, to check some of the stuff that's coming through the platform. So they do kind of have that in place. There are a couple of problems with it, I think, which have been you know pointed out even by these fact-checking partners themselves. So one is that the fact-checkers that are working with Facebook still don't really have a lot of insight into like how big the problem is or whether the stories that they're seeing are just like the tip of the iceberg, like how much more is there for them to be looking at. And Facebook has kind of limited this to like the worst of the worst, so like the most egregious hoaxes and things like that. So they're looking at this dashboard, but they're not seeing, they're not necessarily seeing a lot beyond it. And I think that they would like, you know, more communication with Facebook about what's actually happening there and why. 
you know, Facebook doesn't want to do this stuff itself. It doesn't want to be the decision maker. It's very happy outsourcing this to to other people so that it doesn't have to, like, take the blame. And I guess the question is, is Facebook going to have to, like, start doing more of this internally? Is it going to have to hire more people to do these jobs within the company and make these judgment calls? And, you know, I think that it probably is going to have to, but it doesn't want to. If it were just a sort of a straight, you know, if I'm, I'm a newspaper and I post a story and, and you know, I, ta- you know, tag it a certain way or, or I share it a certain way and, and you know, my audience is going to find it because they, they have their algorithm and they're dishing stuff up the way they want to dish it up. It's difficult for a publisher to sort of say that they're not, that Facebook is not how somehow involved in the distribution or the decision-making about, of content and placing of content. So, you know, I don't know, maybe it's more of a larger philosophical question about what, you know, maybe Facebook's role is in this whole ecosystem that they've created. Totally. Yeah. And just like, why, I mean, should, should Facebook even be a place that we think about for getting news at all? Like it may not, maybe it wishes that weren't even part of its role and it wishes it could just get out of it. And I mean, maybe that would be, maybe that would be like a better <laughs> thing for all of us if people were going to go find their news somewhere else instead of yeah. kind of relying on it to come to them through Facebook. Well, yeah, and it's this weird thing because we all, you know, all the, all these publishers, they got into this this idea of, well, we need to get into Facebook because that's where our readers are. You know, we, we can post our content, you know, and as somebody who, who works at a website, and, you know, and when Facebook works, it works well. You get a lot of traffic from it. There's all that stuff that you can't control that really kind of it's really labor intensive sometimes to get anything to work well on Facebook. I'm sure there's some people who know how to do it and, you know, they can spend money to, to, to do advertising, to to push articles and things like that. But, you know, it, it's, tough, it's tough sometimes dealing with Facebook. And then on top of that, you have this this trust factor. So I guess this is this is sort of the marriage you make when you when you decide that you need to you're, you're trying to use Facebook as a distribution system for your content, understanding its limitations, but also the dangers that that may be afoot because you don't control the entire distribution. Definitely. And then you're sort of left like trying to guess, like, what is it going to mean for your company when Facebook makes these algorithm changes and says that, you know, news news is going to be downgraded and news feed a little bit. But if it sparks discussion, it'll be up higher. And you're sort of like you're guessing and it's just kind of stupid. And when you start, I don't know about you, I, I see very little actual news in my Facebook feed. So, I mean, the question is, like, what is this even what is this even all for? Like if most people aren't seeing a lot of news in their Facebook feed anyway, like maybe we just get it out there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that might be, and I think maybe people are beginning to do that. And I think maybe even some newsrooms are starting to do that as well. So do you think uh, newsrooms are, are taking this issue as seriously as they should be? I do. I don't think it's really, I don't think it's a newsroom problem as much as I think that people are getting news in so many different ways that I worry that a small group of people is going to get uh, a lot of high quality news. You know, the people, the people who already care about things like subscribing to the New York Times and the Washington Post care about supporting newspapers. Like they're going to keep getting their good news. They're going to keep, you know, following journalists on Twitter and doing things like that. And that there's going to be this, this broader group of people that's kind of left as, as local newspapers kind of die out and, big national newspapers are maybe seen as sort of elite or like left or, you know, associated with, with a liberal elite that 
that the, the remaining news news sources is going to kind of be like news online and sort of whatever comes through Facebook, and that you know some people are going to be getting like high quality news and some people are going to be getting low quality news, and that you know my concern is not that like the high quality news is going to go away, but that it will be seen by fewer people, and that it will just sort of become a more unequal ecosystem, I guess, if we can't agree on like what's true and what isn't. Yeah, it's funny because um, a few months ago I had the opportunity to um, speak at DePaul University, and, and we did this kind of little thing during the presentation where I went through the audience, you know, audience mostly made up of of college students, and asked them where they got them got their news. You know, most of them got their news online. Most of them got their news from social media. Some of them some of them got them from news apps. But it was primarily on their phone in some form or other, whether it was whether it was like a push notification that they'd signed up for or social media post. Not a lot of them said that they shared things that they found. And a lot of them did say that, uh, you know, in, in recent months that they had, uh, you know, blocked people on their social media because of the the content they were sharing. So in that sense, I think, you know, you sort of mentioned the... Um, news literacy, I think people are beginning to understand that they need to control their news feed and what that means for publishers, you know, who knows what that means at this point, but that for the consumer, the consumer needs to to gain control of what the information that they can trust. And, you know, that's the other side of the, the fake news system is, you know, what is it that you can trust? How can you determine if something is, is true? So what, what things out there that are being developed or being used, do you think, are good ways for people to verify something. Yeah, well, so, I mean, one of the things I would say is just that, like, I think that people, like, the people who are using their judgment to block certain people in their news feeds, um, like, that, like, weird relative, like, you have who is always sharing, like, <laughs> the crazy stuff, like, everyone has that person. Like, I mean, I don't think that that's a bad path to take. Like, we don't know a ton about who is sharing fake news, but we know it's, like, not the majority of the population. Like, it seems likely that it's this smaller group of people, possibly a very small group of people who are who are sharing a lot of it. And I think people curating their own own feeds and kind of like getting some of the crazy out isn't a bad idea. Some of the media literacy stuff that I've looked at that I've been excited about, keeping in mind it's like really hard to figure out how any of it would work on a national scale. Like the idea of like ever getting this rolled out to like every elementary school or middle school. I mean it's like crazy and complicated, but I'm interested in some of the programs. There's one out of Stanford um, by a researcher I like there who's kind of looking at how can we teach students to read better online. He talks about how a lot of the time, his name is Sam Weinberg, he talks about a lot of the time like libraries and like teachers and will pass out like this like fake news checklist and it's like you look at you look at these little boxes and you check them off. Like is the headline provocative, like you know, have you heard of this news outlet before? Like things like that, you check them off and then you, and then like basically like, well, if all of these things apply, like then it's real. And what he advocates doing is getting sort of away from this like checkbox old fashioned system that just doesn't really take into account how the internet works and do this thing called lateral reading, where if you come across a news source that you're not familiar with, like you basically get off that website and go like find find what's been written about that source, like find who else is talking about it, like find out who's funding it, like find out what's been written about it in the past and sort of 
taking any given website like as a broader part of the internet and like working and teaching kids to figure out like where that site fits in versus like staying in the world of the website and trying to figure out like what is true and not true within that one website's world. I think it's just a really interesting way of thinking about like teaching kids how to be and adults. I mean, adults need like just as much or more help with this stuff. More help mostly. As kids do. (laughs) Yeah, more totally. Just sort of how to be online, like how to be skeptical online. How do you do that? Yeah, teaching skepticism is 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 huge. I mean, it seems ridiculous for the long. You know, you know, I've had people come up to me and say, "What you think people really, you know, believe the stuff that they read online?" Well, apparently, a lot of people do. At least a lot of people share it, and that's a whole other thing is to to whether they're just sharing something that they know be maybe wrong or maybe questionable just because it has a neat headline or an image or whatever. That doesn't help the, the things. You know, a few episodes back, we had um, had Amy Webb on, and, and one of the things she talked about was this uh, sort of like a food nutrition label for websites that sort of talks about how, you know, how truthful they are, you know, and maybe that's something that, that can be automated where you, you know, depending on, on what type of rankings, reviewing, the verification that's been around a particular website, you can get a sort of a number figure of, as to, okay, this source, this story, this the website has this degree of truthfulness to it. Or in the past, you know, stories from this, this website have had, you know, this level of, of truthfulness in it as a way to sort of quantify the content that's coming at them. Yeah. And I think Google may be trying to incorporate some of that the thing i worry about like i don't think it should be something that people have to go seek out on their own like i think that these browser extensions where you like install it and it tells you like if the site is reputable or not like i don't think that those are going to work because they're going to only to appeal to the people who like care about this already which is a very small group of people like if you're installing like a fact checking thing in your browser like you're not the problem right um you're like two percent of people who do that so how do we incorporate this stuff so that it's not like a choice, people having to go find it, but it's it's like there, like it's like built into whatever they're looking at already. And I mean, I think that that's, that's pretty challenging to do, especially since a lot of the big platforms, like, you know, like we talked about, like don't want to make we don't want to make these decisions. Right. They'll put that off on the, on the, okay, all the newspapers do that. But then, you know, if I've got a fake news site, you know, why do I, why would I go out of my way to, to broadcast that I don't have this or, you know, you know, so, or that I would have a lack of trustworthiness, Get, getting compliance, it, it would be huge in the digital space, something like that. So let's talk a little bit more about media literacy. Do you, you mentioned, uh, like in the elementary schools, this is something that we, we sort of need to be teaching sort of throughout, I guess, the education process, I would imagine. And also, you know, for adults as well. So one of the things, like when I've like talked to, to some elementary school students recently, or something that I hear kind of often is like teachers will tell kids, like, don't go to Wikipedia, like, don't rely on Wikipedia, like, don't believe what you read on Wikipedia, which is actually kind of a crazy thing to say because Wikipedia is probably like a much better source for like a lot of accurate information than I don't know many websites online like that's not a bad thing to be checking out if you want to try to figure out like sort of some background on an issue like go to Wikipedia um that's a good place to start like I go to Wikipedia all the time they've got a pretty um, rigorous they've got a pretty rigorous e- editing process so the, I mean, to the point now where, like, what was it, like, YouTube recently, who was like, oh, yeah, we're going to start, in, you know, we're going to start including links to Wikipedia. 
Wikipedia fact checks with some of our and some of our contested videos or something like that. Like outside platforms are sort of looking to Wikipedia as as a way to make some of these judgment calls for them without them having to do it themselves, which is kind of a, a crazy role for Wikipedia to be taking on. You know, more to the to the point of the media literacy stuff. If people are looking at a lot of news on phones, fact checking on phones is harder. Like, what are you gonna? You're not gonna like necessarily like. Are you gonna open another window? Like, what are you gonna do? There's just all these like little things you have to think about. Like, if someone's getting news on mobile, like, how is this gonna work there? And like, how are we gonna be? Um, I don't know. How are, how are we kind of gonna be getting people to be skeptical on these like tinier screens and things like that? So there's just, I mean, there's just so much to think about and. I know, it's huge now, one of the things that you were writing about recently was about the the fake news that was sort of surrounding Ireland's upcoming election, the election vote on abortion. Um, well, has that has that passed already? Has that election passed? Or uh, that... No, it's okay. it's in it's at the end of May, I think. Yeah, oh. so it's there voting whether or not to legalize abortion. So there's been a, a preponderance of fake news that's sort of risen up around that. Well, so it's interesting. I don't know if it's fake news, like misinformation. Yeah, like I don't even it in the way that we think about it. Um, it's kind of interesting when you start thinking about like fake news, misinformation, whatever, sort of outside of the like. If you get away from politics, like not that abortion isn't political, but if you start thinking about sort of health issues and things like that, there is so much misinformation about sort of like health and like wellness and food and like supplements and things like that. There's that is such a huge problem online too. We don't think of that as fake news so much because we don't we don't think about it in the same way as we do sort of about like Pope endorses Donald Trump type of stuff. But like that's a huge problem too that actually like more than more than ever I I don't think I've ever seen a, a fake news, like political story shared with me on Facebook, but I've definitely seen like smart friends sharing sort of like wacky health or nutritional Facebook stuff where I'm like, I don't know like what this website is or who's writing it, but like that, that stuff is really prominent too. And I think that the, the abortion stuff in Ireland has gotten, gotten tied in with that, you know, with some of the, I don't know, like abort getting an abortion causes like breast cancer like stuff like that like kind of it's, like yeah. healthy it's politics ish it's like not necessarily the kind of stuff that facebook has any partnership in place to to fight against because they're only doing sort of like most egregious like political hoax type stuff and it's just a sort of like w- weird like world of sort of murky information that is not tied to like any news event specifically but arguably like it's it's still affecting people you know they're still getting bad information yeah it's weird that that this idea that i mean people do share things that aren't true things that that aren't aren't factual without any political agenda so then how do you clean that up how do you verify those facts how do you make sure that good information gets out there especially in things that are you know that politics isn't important but you know things like health care and you know food safety and things like that you know, how can you get that good information out there to sort of refute wacky posts that people put up? Yeah, and I was talking so I was talking to an editor in Ireland for that that abortion fake news story that I did. And one interesting thing that she was saying, her name is uh, Susan Daly, she's saying that one interesting thing is that like the major political parties in Ireland, like they're not the ones spreading 
you know, like spreading this misinformation about abortion. Like this is coming from the most, for the most part, this is coming from the ground up. So this is coming from people on social media, like influencing up. She was saying that most of the political parties in Ireland, like actually are campaigning for a a legalized abortion vote. So this debate isn't coming so much from them as it is coming from you know, up from users on social media. And, like, that's something that's interesting to think about, too. Like, this isn't really even something, this isn't, like, necessarily something that politicians or that news organizations are directing. Like, some of this is just coming up from individual people. How do you stop the ignorance from from rising and, and, you know, checking the system so people aren't making bad decisions because they have bad information? Now, before we before we wrap up, I did want to talk about your other beat about uh, women in media. What what is it that you've been particularly focusing on there? I have been interested just in sort of the past few months in how new news organizations are actively taking measures to make their uh, reporting teams and their coverage more equal. So I've gotten to talk to different outlets about like basically how that they how equality is is represented like in their editorial process and their process of assigning stories and deciding like who's going to write what and how they're going to frame it and how they're going to attract more female readers. That is just something that's personally interesting to me. And so it's been cool to talk to these, these women at news organizations who are doing it. So recently I got to talk to, Alexandra Navas at Outside Magazine, which has gotten a lot more political in the recent, I don't know, months, years, maybe last couple of years. And that's like an active choice that they made to to be writing about these issues more like within like this broader political context that we're in. And, you know, some of that is, is environmental stuff, public lands and things like that. And some of that is, you know, including more women and people of color in their pages and how do you how do you assign around that? Like, how do you how do you hire people around that and make that happen? So it's like a really active choice. It's not just being like, oh, like, we want to do this, but we're not going to put any, we're not going to, like, you know, put any numbers in place. Like, we don't want people to feel as if they, like, have to do this. It's like, well, actually, no, like, a big part of the process is sort of, like, doing a little bit of having some, like, quotas, like, having some actionable goals that you're going to reach because otherwise you can kind of just talk about, like, how you're going to do it and kind of make it sound good, but nothing ever actually really happens. So I've been really interested in how, how they're doing that. Do you think that the environment now is more open to, to, you know, taking action like this? Cause you I, know, this is a topic think, that I've heard for a while that, you know, yeah, we got to do this, but I'm, I'm just curious. Go on. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I think so. I mean, like, if you're calling it artificial, then you're acting as if the sort of the structures that like allowed this to be put in place are normal, like the, the like the normal way of being. Like when actually like there are all kinds of decisions that go into that too, like deciding like what is it to be objective. Like a lot of the times that's just like what is objective according to like a white upper class man, and how you know how can someone be objective about like the their own you know their own race their own gender things like that just kind of flipping some of these notions to be more inclusive and then thinking about how you actually like change your news organization around that i mean i think it's something now like especially with some of these like really high profile cases in the news when you see how this stuff went on for so long and like how it was just sort of like hidden and like tamped down for so long 
I think it seems like more clear now that like, you know, that this is a problem that we need to be doing something about. And so maybe the ideas for how to get that into place are, are more welcome than they once were. And it's not it's not just enough to recognize that a change would be a good thing, but actually, you know, putting getting some skin in the game, putting actually making changes that are going to do things. Because if you say, yeah, yeah, I'm open to having different different types of people in my newsroom, but you you don't really change the way you hire the the, the change you staff. You, you don't make it possible for people who are lower in the in the system within you know to work their way up and and to become part of management because really it's it, you know a lot of these things it's you know the story choices you know who's making those decisions sometimes you can have a more diverse reporter base but if you don't have people you know higher up in an organization who have that you know different background that different perspective you're not going to get necessarily those stories assigned and get those people that you other types of people in in your paper as subjects totally yeah change is hard so thinking of it as something that's going to like happen naturally like it's not going to you may have to do things that feel you know a little artificial or a little like data oriented at first to kind of change some of these things so looking forward you know looking over the next year or so do you you know do you still see you know the same sort of issues that we've been dealing with the last year you know from digital journalism wise they're just going to continue on or or other things going to become bigger what do you think is are the things that are going to be sort of occupying us or maybe occupying your uh, your story list? I don't think a lot of this stuff is going to get fixed anytime soon. It always sort of seems as if like, some change is about to happen. Like we have these like congressional Facebook hearings and stuff like that, and then kind of nothing happens. I think that if, if Europe is more actively regulating some of this stuff, then which, which it looks as if they are going to be doing, then some of the ways that these companies change um, are forced to change there may end up applying to us here too. So if we see some changes that are rolled out to other countries, they will affect the United States as well if the countries are stricter than the U.S. has been. But I think, you know, ultimately, like, it's, you know, lawmakers who have to decide to take action, and it's, I guess it remains to be seen whether whether that's actually going to go through. Yeah, you know how they are. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we'll probably just be talking about the same stuff in a year. Okay. Well, well, it's job security, right? You, 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 you <laughs> yeah, got exactly. you got stuff to work on. Laura, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been great. I uh, enjoyed talking awesome. to you. Thanks, Michael. All right. Is there yeah, any? You got anything big that you're working on that you want to? You know, like that coming out in the next few weeks that you wanted to say? Hey, we get a, we get a big project we're rolling out or anything going on at the Neiman Lab. No, but I would point to an article that we published last week by my colleague Shan Wang, which was about uh, how much local news, local publishers are actually putting on Facebook, which is not a lot. So you might want to go check that out. Okay. All right. I'll make sure there's a link to that in the story. Thanks. Thanks again for coming on. Okay. Thanks. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. It takes a lot of work to put out an episode of It's All Journalism, and here are the people who do that work. Nicole Grisco is our producer. Amber Healy provides our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Nicholas Hunter provides our research and web assist, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell.
Would you like to find out more about our podcast? Maybe you want to contribute to our Patreon campaign. Yes, we have a Patreon campaign. I just haven't mentioned it in a long time. Go to itsalljournalism.com. Follow the links at the top of the page to find out more. And while you're there, why not sign up for our weekly email newsletter? It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C.